You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Showreel, and uh, we'll kick off straight away. We've got uh, Jonathan Alley on the line. He's uh, made a film called Love in Bright Landscapes. And it's the story of David McComb of the Triffids. G'day, Jonathan. How are you? Very well, Annie. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Great, great film. A lot of meticulous work. Uh, I'll, I'll have to say that uh, I used to be a DJ on uh, Triple R when the film. Uh, oh, sorry, when the uh, uh, the song "The uh, Wide Open Road" came uh, out, and I can remember it was on high rotation when we were there pretty timeless piece of work. I mean, it came out and it was written when Dave was in his early 20s, which when you consider that song is, is pretty remarkable, pretty mature and remarkable piece of work for someone of that age. Um, pretty atypical for the times. I, I think it was quite telling that it, it went top 30 in the UK while only just cracking the top 50 in Australia. Huh. Um but if you listen to it all these years later, it's a typical example of, of Dave's very, very multi-layered way of writing. It's, it's, a, it's an epic, graceful ride through the landscape, but underneath there is something far more dark and telling going on. And I think that's part of its longevity and part of its sort of, you know, uh, wonder, really. So, yeah, I, I can still listen to that song after 13 years of making the film, which is probably something a bit remarkable in itself, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I came from the country, and so being in the city in the middle of uh, Fitzroy, it just sang to me. I, it was just like uh, it opened the book of Australia to, uh, in a way that uh, hadn't had uh, not been um, written before. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very much part of, you know, some of the themes that we explore in the film and certainly part of Dave's writing is that there's... And he tricks you, and he tricks you very effectively um, all the way through various elements of his of his songwriting catalogue this way in that a lot of that writing which invokes the landscape and the countryside is using it as the canvas rather than the tent. It's a setting, it's a place. And um, there's a uh, sequence in the film where we talk about his literary influence and people like Flannery O'Connor and how they would always set the place and the setting in their stories very, very early to give the reader uh, kind of an, an immediate context for where they were. And I think that he does that in his songwriting. 
but the locations aren't the subject. The locations are just settings and, you know, the, the dark love story that, um, that come through, uh, the writing is, I think, very much part of a kind of ambivalence to um, the, the country around him in that it's, it's sort of dark and unknowable, um, you know, because it's so old and it's, it's as, as white colonialist sort of second generation, third generation settlers in this country, um, it's, it's something that was, you know, A, that was invaded and, and B, was never um, acknowledged as being invaded and, and that creates discomfort in the people that live in it. And I think the, the, certainly the, uh, the atmosphere and the music, even though it's overtly romantic, has that feeling of discomfort in it. And that's why one of the reasons I think people still listen to, to David's writing and listen to the Triffid is because they get this ever-evolving emotional reaction from it. It's familiar, but it's also unknowable. But it's also, uh, David, David McCoon, uh, your film actually treks, of course, from Western Australia, from Perth, because that's where the Triffids and he came from. Uh, and uh, I know that times have changed because of the electronic uh, world that we all live in, but in those days, it was a long trek to come. There's such an enormous emotional and uh, uh, massive talent, basically, his creative talent. Uh, I mean, people listen to him. If you're a words person, he's a wordsmith. Oh, very much so. Um, you know, that was just in him. Um, you know, there was he. He was a you know very various um, prolific poet. Although that was a, a fairly private, sort of personal part of his you know expression. Um, I mean, a, a lot. In fact, all the poetry was was posthumously published, sadly. Um, but it was good that it was done. I mean, I think that, that the fact that that was recognised. Um, well, he died very but, young. And why did you decide? Why did you decide to make this film? Because it's a very complicated film. It's very dense. It's got an amazing array of uh, uh, clips from all parts of his life. It's an amazing um, piece of uh, honour to his spirit, really. Oh, that's really lovely to say, and I hope it is. And thank you. Um, so, why did I decide to make it? I just think that. Um, as you listen to music over the years, I mean, as you've just been saying to me, if you've been in the radio game for decades, um, music comes and goes. You know, some music will turn up in your ears and it sounds pretty great at the time, but if you turn it back on 10 years later, it's really dated. And you sort of have that moment where you go, oh, I used to love this song back in 1990-something, and now it just sounds like that year that it was made in. And I, and I think a lot of these bands that get back together to kind of relive things it's a nostalgic kick. You can never go back. It's it's all very well to go back to the time we were all young and we all fell in love. But when we were all pretty, yeah, we were all pretty. <laughs> Just nostalgia. Whereas with I think the fact that Dave's work kind of lives, it's relevant, it's alive now. Um, it is quite rare in people to, for a, a, a songwriter to be able to to pull that off. Is actually pretty rare in music. I mean, that's not the only one who's been able to do it, obviously. I mean, there are a great many others, but the fact, I think, that he was able to do that, and Australia really just missed him. You know, um, I really feel that he was not acknowledged his due by this country. Um, so that's one reason I made it. The other is that I think that 
he's one of those rare songwriters that deals purely in emotion. He's dealing mm. purely with the um, emotional connection that he finds in music and that other people find to his music, and he's not writing about things in a very literal manner. I mean, David would never have done something as so cheap as to write a protest song, for example. I'm not He's living in a parallel universe with an emotional uh, flavour. Yeah, I mean, you know, writing something as literal as a protest song or a song very literally about something just wasn't in his way of doing things. He was extremely metaphorical, multi-layered, and took influence from you know, just anything going. And, and so this, to me, is why he's the original punk, David Cohn. He it doesn't matter whether it's a, a piece of Russian literature for 100 years from 100 years ago or something he sees in a horror movie. Um, you know, whether it's New York punk rock um, or some weird piece of music that Brian Eno's made, he will take influence from everywhere. You know, he was such a sponge and such a magpie as well in the greatest tradition of songwriters. Um, and to me, but the combination that He's writing from that kind of emotional place that Australia just missed him and that he was um, his quality control was just so high. There's no bad record. And even with the greatest band, you say, oh, those five records, they're fantastic, listen to them, but maybe don't get that, that one. You know, whereas with, you don't get that with Dave. It's all extremely high-quality stuff and quite timeless. And I think so. the combination of those things, I hope, answers your question as to why I made this film because I think the work should be recognised. I think he and his story should be recognised. And I think people can take away from this film a great deal for themselves if they go back and listen to the music and read the poems. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. It's interesting that uh, there was a sequence, uh, there was a classic moment when uh, the band was being sidelined and uh, they were glorifying the uh, the company, the record company, was glorifying over the individual. That was a common um, thread that uh, business did uh, at that time with talent. It was quite an interesting uh, revelation that it happened to them as well. Well, I think they still do. Yeah, I know. They do it all the time. change that much. Um, but, yeah, but I think that's a very crucial point in the story you pick up there, Annie, because... I think that's the point. The reason we actually make something of what happened with that record, which is the second last Clifford studio album, Calendar, um, was because to me that's the point where Dave just starts to get lost. Unravels. That's, that's a little bit. That's the beginning of it. And, and I think that's what the film is. It's the story of someone who was so driven and so determined and so kind of intense about what they wanted to do who still managed to just personally, professionally, really, when you come down to the final analysis, get lost. Mm. Um, and I, I find that very sad. But at the same time, even though he did get lost, you know, the quality control just never went down and the, 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 the work rate just never went down, which is incredible. The other, um, the other thing about him is that uh, he was really, they were really uh, appreciated in Europe. They were. They were, and I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, we were we were having a, a preview screening last night, and this question came up from the audience as to why I thought the tickets were more popular in Europe than in Australia. I think it's partially a generational thing. They came up with a generation of fans. I mean, the Moodists, the Bad Seeds, the Go-Betweens, to a lesser extent, the Saints, a lot that sort of come a bit before, um, of Australian bands who landed in London at that time and just 
blaze the trail because they had really done the hard yards in the tough Australian pubs. They had played and played and played and played. By the time they got to Europe, they were just these crap units. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Alvey was saying to me once that they expected to, they, they knew some person the East Coast, played a bit on the East Coast and went to Europe. When they landed in the UK, they sort of thought, oh, it's going to take ages to get a reputation because there are all these really big British bands with all this industry support and they get on the radio and people know who they are. And the first gig they played, they just blew the, the band they were supporting off the stage. Yeah, yeah. I've <laughs> heard this too. Because, I've heard yeah. this too, that the, the English bands used to mime. Oh, yeah, well, it was the 80s. <laughs> you know? um, but the other, I think the other reason for it is more complicated. Yeah. I think people in Europe have this chipper kind of sunny view of Australian life. Yeah. They don't really understand that that the you know the sunny country in the south where the dark everyone can make it. Yes, exactly. They don't understand the dark undertones of living in this country or living in this part of the world more generally. I see it as this, and you would if you lived in Britain and you saw images of Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, well, on television, where it's all sunny and everybody's happy, and everyone's neighbours in their backyard, and a fruit tree, and everyone's got lots of money. Well, ha ha ha. We all know that isn't true. Um, but you know, when these bands would start to arrive with that dark undertone that you mentioned, it's, they're seeing a whole new side of a culture they thought they knew that they really didn't, and you combine that with the power of the, the live performance that we were talking about before, then people start talking. And I think that's what happened. I think that's why people like John Peel picked up on the topic. That's yeah, why yeah. Echo and the Bunnymen were friends with them and offered support. They sort of knew immediately that, that when this band arrived that... Magic well, had arrived. People. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have I to stop so. talking, Jonathan. Uh, uh, we could talk for ages on uh, Love in Bright Landscapes. Uh, uh, but I have to stop and... Um, it's a real pity. Uh, but you're opening in Sydney and Melbourne on May the 5th, aren't you? That's correct. We open at Cinema Nova in, um, in Carlton on May the 5th and uh, really looking forward to that. And we've also got um, a Q&A. Uh, well, Robert McComb and Graham Lee will be appearing with me at the Nova in Carlton on May the 5th. And we've got a Q&A in Elstonwick on May the 7th at 4 in the afternoon. At the Classic? That's right, at the yeah. Classic. Thornbridge Texture House, May the 7th, uh, later that oh, day. Oh, right, Good and stuff. Then, um, anyone in the hills, I'm up at the Cameo in Belgrade Great. with Rob Snarsky on the 8th of May. And then we play a big gig at the Astor Cinema with friends of David McCone live after the screening. Oh, fantastic. So the, the event starts at 3.30 in the afternoon. So we're busy little bees. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for talking to me, Jonathan. And good luck with the film because you don't, I mean, you know, you don't really need luck. It's great. Oh, you do need luck. Believe me, mate. Without <laughs> <laughs> luck. Au revoir. Hey once luck is being ready.
You're back with Annie on Showreel. And uh, on the line, we've got Mick McIntyre and Kate Cleek, Cleric. Is that how you say your name, Kate? Claire. Claire. Oh, that's easy. I've actually spoken to you before, Kate, because I remember talking to you about a fantastic film called Kangaroo, which was an extraordinary film that your uh, um, uh, film house made. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. And so you're, you're in the... Um, uh, business of making documentaries, and uh, this is—we're talking today about a six-part documentary series exploring eating plants. And uh, it, it, I uh, watched uh, the Australian episode because it uh, visits five, uh, six different locations around the world, and it's talking about veganism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's talking about the rise. I mean, we were so kind of, we were watching the rise in veganism on the supermarket shelves. I don't know if you've been down Coles or Woolworths yeah, or something yeah, lately. Yeah. And just growing deal. and growing. So we were like, wow, this trend is really big. And we, you know, did the research. And I think for the last four or five years, it's been one of the biggest culinary food trends in the world. We were like, yeah, we definitely need a series on this. And people just, I think people are just really interested to know what's it about, what can I do? What are the benefits? What can I actually cook? Yeah, yeah. It's not about crazy people who are pointing a finger at meat eaters, saying that you're um, you're unsavoury types and you're you're taking the world out uh, by eating um, meat. But in actual fact, there's you you actually go and talk to different people and ask them about how and why they became vegans, and how it doesn't make them into insipid beings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. In fact, we've interviewed doctors in quite a few other countries uh, for different reasons. And, I mean, one of the main things is that how they're, how much research is going into and what they're finding about how a plant-based diet can really improve your health and is actually at the forefront of preventative medicine for the three main diseases in Australia being heart disease, diabetes and cancer. So, in fact, you know, quite the opposite. It seems to be, you know, a real um, preventative medicine eating, you know, you are what you eat. Well, Mick, I'll bring you in. You're the cinematographer, aren't you? Yes, that's right, yeah. So uh, tell us about um, the process of... uh, coming up with a series that actually takes us across the world as well as uh, about a subject which some people are completely um, in love with and other people need to be uh, um, understand, you know. that, that yeah. yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. <laughs> and we, we sort of approach it a bit like a military operation because um, we just, for some reason, we decided to travel to six different countries, including Australia, which, of course, is a challenge in itself. And then we had to figure out um, who we wanted to talk to and who we wanted to interview and who we wanted to film. Um, but, uh, and, and, but really, the research, uh, as Kate said, because it's such a fast-growing trend, the research wasn't that difficult. You only had to Google it and you, you found, uh, you know, volumes and volumes of information about this new way of eating. So the challenge was to logistically to get there, but also to decide who to who to put in and who to leave out because it's such a growing base. And but we were determined to try and capture the culture in each of those countries. Um, so we used a local host, a local identity, to host that episode. And that local host takes us around to meet the the, the players, if you like, in this in this field and. 
And we're also determined to um, get to cook some of the food and show how that food's cooked. So, yeah, we really wanted it to be educational and, and, and entertaining. As, as You know, uh, that was our main goal. Did you start off with the principle when you're script writing and searching out people to answer the questions that non-believers pose? So, for example, in the Australian section, you... you um, you do some great things. Uh, I mean, you actually take people to a vegan pie shop. And uh, the other one I rather liked was the um, Zoom meeting uh, being uh, where the person was being uh, taught how to make a, a cake. I thought that was a really cute idea. Well, the, the, the filming with Zoom, that was a, that was a pandemic-induced necessity because <laughs> we couldn't leave the country to film that particular segment. But... Look, it, it really, yeah, we wanted, to edu- we wanted to educate and inform people. I think that's what we set out to do. And, and so that meant, that meant, you know, really taking on a beginner's mind, if you like, and, and, and being a student to this. Because I tell you, Kate and I learned a lot ourselves. So we figured if we're learning a lot, then the viewer's going to learn a lot too. So, yeah. yeah so um, you didn't start off as vegans, but you probably are now. <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly changed our our cooking and our eating for sure. I mean, as I explained, we we had a chef in each country cook a dish, and so there are six amazing new recipes that people can learn by watching the series, and we can vouch they're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, they look delicious. Um, so that's one of the uh, so we're, it, thematically, you decided to have um, a a presenter. Uh, uh, who then took you to various people to speak about it? You you obviously had a segment about health. You obviously had a, a des- you made a decision to have a chef uh, produce a, an item for people to actually eat. Uh, so I mean, there was a structure going on in these uh, uh, each episode, right? Is, is yeah, that, I mean, yeah. I think. I think it's a lovely thing to as a travel log. I think it's really lovely, and we certainly enjoyed being shown around because, you know, people can share with you what's happening in their community. But, you know, one of the main emphasis is to really introduce people. There's so much sort of new happening in this space. Like, say in Tel Aviv, we've, um, we talked to the chef about filming something that was traditional and local, but something that he had just, you know, veganized, as it were. And uh, so he made a oyster, like a barbecued oyster mushroom shawarma. Uh-huh. And uh, so taking the sort of traditional shawarma, but then really this, oh, man, that was like the best food. Not only do they have, <laughs> of course, brilliant like tahinis and hummuses mm. and pickled food and just that Mediterranean diet, but then uh, this marinated um, grilled oyster mushroom as a sort of replacement kind of meat, as it were, was so delicious. So, yeah, we wanted to kind of capture a little bit of each country too, so... In America, they make mac cheese, and uh, in England, they make pancakes. So it was sort of like a little bit of us culturally sort of guiding, I guess, from an Australian perspective, what we thought people would be interested in. Well, it's funny, you know, that people would probably be surprised that Lord of the Fries is actually vegan. Yeah, it's true. Hey? Like, yeah, I mean, there's so much good food in there, and... Uh, yeah, there's hot dogs and chicken burgers and... Well, it's funny. I went to... A, I was at a demonstration in the city and uh, it had blocked off Flinders Street and I went over to the Lord of the Flies outlet because I was really hungry and they were so positive about the demonstration. I thought, oh, these people's politics are so good. 
<laughs> but I didn't know they were vegans. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Amanda Walker, who's one of the co-founders of that uh, Melbourne person, she's just done a great job. She was really excited about making food that people can try and, you know, comfort food, really, that we love, like, you know, fries and burgers and, you know, hot dogs and all the things you sort of, you know, People are like, I'm not giving up that. And actually, yeah, that's you right. get this most amazing array of uh, options to choose from. Because we're coming to the end of the program, I better, I better get you to tell it, tell my listeners about Sunday, May the 1st at the Lido Cinemas in Hawthorne. Yeah, so we're having a... We're, even though it's a TV series, we can't... We love the cinema, so we're having a special binge watch at the Lido Cinema on Sunday afternoon starting at 5 o'clock and we're going to be there doing a Q&A. So, yeah, there'll be six episodes all at once with a Q&A. So it'll be a bit of fun and, um, you know, it's lovely to see it on the big screen as well. Oh, yeah. And also people can catch it on uh, SBS, can't they? That's right. It's, it's playing on SBS as, as, as well as, um, uh, as, as you said, the Friday, Friday night at 8 o'clock is the Australian episode and then, of course, SBS On Demand. And also they can... They can watch it through our channel, um, which is eatingplants.tv. Great. Thanks very much for talking to me, you two. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. Bye. And uh, that's it. Coming up next is Published or Not. I'll go out with Wide Open Road, the wonderful Triffids. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.